Well, good morning, everybody. Again, uh, happy Father's Day to all of our fathers out there. What an exciting Sunday. We got a lot, lot going on uh, as we were thinking about this Sunday and how to fit it all in. Uh, man, it's really exciting to see uh, just everything going on with Immeasurably More, everything going on uh, with the baptisms. Uh, it, it's, it's just awesome. The team's going out to the mission field, uh, student life camp for students. God's just doing an incredible work. And uh, we don't want to take it for granted. We want to enjoy uh, every second of it. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Uh, the end of John chapter 10 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse uh, 22. Let me pray for us real quick and we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. So God, we uh, love you. Uh, Father, we turn our attention toward uh, your word. And God, we know that your word is living and active Lord, it's, it's powerful. Uh, God, it is the revelation of who you are. So, Lord, I pray, God, you would show us more about who you are. Uh, God, you would convict our hearts, convict us of sin, convict us of uh, things in our lives and things in our minds that are not of you. And, Lord, I pray you clarify next steps for us to take through your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's start together in verse 22. It's the word of God. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. That's uh, more common known as, as Hanukkah. It's actually not in the Old Testament or not in the Bible, but let, came about uh, right before the New Testament period. Uh, so it was about winter, so you may not know this, but we studied John 10 the first half last week, and it was, uh, it was the spring. And so we've, we've had quite a bit of time that has passed between uh, verse 21 and verse 22. And so now we've moved uh, almost six months to the winter time, and it says Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade, and so Solomon's colonnade was kind of a a public uh, where where public speeches would have been given uh, at the temple in Jerusalem. So lots of people there, uh, mainly Jewish people. Verse twenty four, the Jews who were gathered there, uh, who were there gathered around Jesus, saying, "How long will you keep us in suspense?" If you are the Messiah, then tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's names testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And so again, we're in the final days here of what uh, people would say are Jesus' public ministry. And so the attention in the Gospel of John, you guys have been walking with me through it as a church family, and so we've seen a lot of Jesus' public ministry over the past uh, past month or so, and so we're kind of drawing to an end. We've seen a lot of conflict happen uh, between him and the religious people of this time period, the, Jew, the Jews, the people who uh, really wanted control is what seems to be. They didn't really want to listen to anybody because they believed they were the religious leaders and they were kind of the judges of this time. And once again, we see another conflict break out between Jesus and these Jewish leaders. And they're wanting him to tell them uh, plainly that he is the Messiah. And we know over the past three or four chapters that Jesus has already done that. And he has done it quite well. And he's done it in a number of ways and figure of speeches to tell them and so he says, I have, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep, which kind of ties back to last week where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the people that follow, truly follow Christ, will be considered his sheep. And so he's saying, 
uh, to the Jewish leaders, you are not a part of my flock, so to speak. So you are not saved. You are not Christians. And so he wants them to be clear about that, which would have been offensive to them. And you're about to see uh, that. He goes on, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. I love this, because here, really, Christ gives us some incredible proof marks of what it truly means to be a sheep, or what it truly means to be a follower of Christ, as well as some incredible promises uh, for those that are saved, that are a part of the sheepfold. And so we get proof marks and we get promises. And so uh, he says first, uh, proof marks, that his sheep are characterized by a couple things. Faith, meaning that they believe in him. They believe that he is who he says he is. Uh, two, obedience. They are obedient. They listen to his voice and they do what he asks them uh, to do. Not only that, but they're characterized by relationship. Thirdly, meaning that he knows them and they know him and they listen and communicate and they're a part of his uh, flock. And then not only that, but fourthly, discipleship. He says that they follow him. They follow his leadership. And so what we see is that the proof marks of genuine faith are faith and obedience and relationship and discipleship. And we'll talk a little more about that in just a few minutes. But not only that, for those that believe, he also gives some incredible promises here, namely eternal life and eternal security. Eternal life meaning that life, uh, that we get, we get Christ forever. We get to spend our life not only here on earth, but also in eternity after we die physically with Christ or he comes back to get us. And not only eternal life, but eternal security. Eternal security meaning uh, nothing can snatch us out of the hands of God. We've all seen the Allstate commercial, you are in good hands. Well, in Christianity, you are in better hands, right? Christ saved you, and when you're in his hands, nothing has the power to snatch you out of his hands. And notice his hands and the Father's hands are the same hands. They are one. And so it's the, the greatest safety deposit box you've ever seen in your entire life. And those are powerful words, powerful words. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents then picked up stones to stone him. And we don't really do this nowadays, but stoning would have been the way to, to kill someone. To, uh, you would stone them to death, and, and it was a kind of a, a way uh, to, to, to really execute somebody at that time. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but blasphemy, because you are a mere man, but you claim to be God. So again, things are kind of escalating here. Uh, this is not like a normal conversation uh, with a person. Uh, you can feel the intensity. Uh, the Jewish leaders at this point have picked up stones. They're ready to kill Jesus because they feel like they have reason to do that because he's claiming to be God. They don't believe he's God. And if someone claims to be God, it is blasphemy, and to them, it is, is worthy to, be, uh, to, to kill this person. But Jesus, of course, uh, buys a little time here. Let's see what he does. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law, and I've said, 
I've said, you are gods, little g gods. Verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? What in the world is he talking about? Trying to confuse him? I don't know. Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. That's what he's doing. And so you kind of have to go back to Psalm 82 and get the context of the situation. And so Psalm 82 is where literally God uh, rebukes the judges, the religious leaders of that time. When you see the word little g gods in the Bible, it's the word Elohim, right? And sometimes that's God himself, but there's other uses in Scripture of that same word uh, for people, mainly religious leaders. So a, really a better translation of that word would be uh, judges. And so uh, when you read it, it's not written in your law. I've said that you are judges. He, if he called them judges to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Verse 37, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me in what I say, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, those two words for know and understand are the same exact word. So Jesus is repeating that because his heart is that they would know him and understand him and follow him. I mean, it's what an incredible uh, picture of grace and patience with these religious leaders, literally stones in their hand about to stone them. And Jesus is saying, I just want you to know me. I want you to, to follow me and understand me and, and, and know me as the good shepherd sent from God. Verse 39, but again, they tried to seize him, but Jesus escaped their grasp. And so again, he uses Psalm 82 here, uh, really, uh, that whole psalm, if you go back and read it, is a reminder to the religious leaders that one day they will stand before God and be judged justly for their lives. And so Jesus is trying and using this scripture to point these folks to the same exact fact, that they are missing it and their, their judgment upon Christ, who he is and what he's come to do, is very, very important. And they will be held accountable for this judgment that they're making on God. And so Jesus has clearly, uh, clearly testified to the fact that he is God and he is from God the Father. And he's told them that. And not only that, but he has shown many, many works that only the Messiah would do from the Old Testament scriptures. And so those works also testify to the fact that he is God. And how they respond to him is very, very important. And they will be held accountable before God for how they respond to him. But of course, again, the Jewish leaders reject Christ and they try to seize him, but of course they're unsuccessful because the time for Christ to die is not yet. We know that. Verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan River to the place where John, that's John the Baptist, had been baptizing in the early days. And there he stayed and many people came to him. They said, Though John, John the Baptist, never performed a sign, all that John the Baptist said about this man Jesus was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Somebody say, many believed. 
So it's kind of an interesting ending to this passage. Again, this kind of concludes Jesus' whole public ministry. So this is what we see. Now the attention will begin to shift towards uh, really going towards the cross. He has a few more I am statements that he'll say. But really his dealings with the religious people now are kind of done. And so we see uh, him conclude here. And it kind of jumps to a a different subject, so so to speak. He leaves the religious people. He leaves Jerusalem, goes back across uh, the Jordan River. And it says many people believed there. Many people came to him and believed there. I think John is trying to show us something specific here. Do you remember John's purpose uh, for his gospel? We, we saw it in John, the end of John. Uh, John tells us very specifically, I've written these things to you so that you may believe. That's what he wants. And so John's whole gospel is about one thing, convincing people, persuading people to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And I think what John's trying to show us here is that the story of Jesus does not stop with unbelieving Pharisees. It stops with many people believing, right? And that's what we're about to see uh, for the rest of the time. And then he turns attention back to this guy named John the Baptist. And I think he has a, a perfect reason and an intentional reason doing that. Do you remember John the Baptist? Do you remember anything about John the Baptist? What characterized John the Baptist? What was his message what was his mindset? Remember, he came as the, the front runner, and he was announcing that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is coming. I'm not the God. I'm just a prophet that come before him to tell you that this is the one that God said would come. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Look at him. Look at him. Don't look at me. This was his ministry. We see it in John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. This is kind of uh, the best conclusion of John the Baptist's ministry, so let me refresh your memory of it. You yourselves can testify that I said, this is John the Baptist talking, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. He's comparing himself to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. So John the Baptist is the friend, Christ is the bridegroom, and he waits and listens for him and then is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy, John the Baptist says, is mine and is now complete because Jesus is here and he must become greater and I must become less. And this is John the Baptist's ministry. It's, I'm so excited that this guy's coming into the world. And we see John the Baptist baptizing so many people and, and that's why he's named John the Baptizer. And then when Christ walks up, he looks and he says, that's him. He's the one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and then he begins to throw people towards him, and he kind of just descends into into just nobody knowing who he is because he's pointed everything at Christ, and he makes this statement, he must become greater, and I must become less. And one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, had a really, really cool thought on this and why uh, this passage would end this specific way. I want you to listen to what he said. Piper says that there are mindsets that set people up to believe and mindsets that set people up to be like the Jews in Jerusalem that said, I don't believe, I actually want to kill Jesus. And Piper says, the mindset of John the Baptist is the key to faith. There's something about his mindset that led him and led others that followed him 
that when they saw Christ, they believed. They didn't have questions. They didn't ask or they didn't confront Christ or they didn't try to, uh, try to argue him away like the religious leaders. They just believed and they began to follow him. And he says it's because John the Baptist was humble and he was lowly. He wasn't in it for himself. He had one goal and that goal was to point people to the one. Piper says the key to faith is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And the Holy Spirit's work in our lives can be summarized this way. The Holy Spirit's work in our life makes us fall out of love with being somebody. It makes us fall out of love with fame. It makes us fall out of love with getting all the attention. Piper says, when the Spirit of God helps us get this mindset and moves us to this place, it is then and only then that we will go deep in our faith and our belief in Christ. So may we as a church have this mindset, I must decrease and he must increase. And may that show us that the Spirit of God has done an incredible work and is continuing to do an incredible work in our lives. So this is our passage, this is the Word of God. So what do I wanna do? I wanna kinda put it on the bottom shelf uh, to help us with the 15 minutes that we have left here. And so I got three points for you. If you wanna write them down, here they are. The first is this. I think in this passage we see the truth about Jesus. The truth about Christ. Secondly, we see the proof marks of genuine belief. So we see some things that can help us realize if we truly believe or if we just say that we believe. And then thirdly, we see the promises of salvation. God gives us some incredible promises of salvation that as we as believers should cling to and rejoice in and walk in. So let's talk about each of these. The first is the truth about Jesus. So again, Jesus points the Pharisees to two things to confirm his identity, which are his works and his word. Both of these are important. Christ did not just come in speech. He came in speech and in works. He brought power and he brought wisdom. And both of these things testify to the fact that he is God. And if you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in Christ, this is the perfect apologetic. This is how uh, people come to see that Jesus is who he says he is. He was a man historically. He walked the face of the earth. He did miracles. Uh, he was killed on a cross. He rose from the dead. Not only that, but he claimed to be God. He also made some claims about us that our sin had separated us from God and that we needed to be reconciled. And if he died and rose from the dead, then we better believe his words actually have some validity now because he's the only person to ever do that. So let's look at these things. First, his works. Letter A, his works. Jesus' works reveal to us that he was God. Over the past 10 chapters in the Gospel of John, we've seen a lot of Jesus' works that testify to the fact that he is God. And there's way more, John says. And he just says, these are just a few that I wrote down. And let me give you the few. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. John chapter 4, Jesus knows everything about the woman at the well in their encounter. John chapter five, Jesus heals the man who had been paralyzed or lame for 38 years. John six, Jesus feeds 5,000 with a child's lunchbox. 
John chapter 6, we see Jesus walk on water. We also see him speak to a hurricane, and it ceases. Uh, We also see in John 9 that Jesus heals a man that was born blind, which the Old Testament teaches that only the Messiah would do that miracle. John chapter 11, which is our next chapter, we're going to see him literally walk into uh, a funeral of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come out. And a man that had been dead for three days, going on four days, comes out of the tomb by the word and the power of God and his word. All of these works are miracles that testify to us that there's something different about this man. And it should point us to the Old Testament where the Old Testament shows us that there would come a Messiah and this Messiah would come and he would do many works and miracles. Isaiah 35 verses five through six says this, Isaiah prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. Then, when this guy comes, the Messiah, will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Not only that, but we also see this in the life of John the Baptist. Uh, Do you remember John the Baptist as he was uh, in jail, in prison, about to be beheaded for his faith and You know, John says, hey, go to Jesus and ask him, is he the Messiah? Is he the one to come? Do you remember what they came back and told him in Luke 7, 22? Jesus said, go back and report to John the Baptist what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. And so John the Baptist knew that was what would accompany Christ. And so John the Baptist knew the Old Testament, but guess who else knew the Old Testament? These religious leaders. And they refused to see what John the Baptist and many of us can see. And so Jesus left no room for doubt with his works. His works spoke for themselves that he was God. Not only his works, but his word, let her be. Jesus told us clearly that he was God over and over again. Anybody that tells you that the Bible, uh, in the Bible, Jesus doesn't tell you that he is God is wrong. Many times throughout the scriptures, specifically in the Gospel of John, does he say, I am he, I am the Savior, I'm the light of the world. He goes on and says it in many different ways, which is why Jesus tells him here in verse 25, if I've told you clearly that I'm the Messiah and you have not believed, so he says that. I'm going to just give you some references so that you know how many times he told him this. He says, I told you in John 3.13, John 6.38, that I am the one who came down from heaven. That's God. John 3.15, I told you whoever believes in me has eternal life. That means he's a savior. John 5.19-23, I told you I am the unique son of God. That means he is the son of God. He is the one to come. John 5, 19 through 23, he also tells them, I told you, I will judge all humanity. Anybody who can judge all humanity is God himself. Again, in John 5, 19 through 23, I told you, all should honor me just as they honor God the Father, meaning him and God are one. God the Father are one, meaning he is God. John 5, 39, I told you that the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, speak of me. 
And he goes through, he talks about Moses talking about him. He talks about Abraham talking about him. John 7, 28, 29, I told you that I perfectly reveal God the Father. You want to know God the Father? Look at me because we are one, meaning I am God. John 8, 29, 8, 46, uh, I always please God and I never sin. He is the sinless Savior. I could go over and over and over. I told you uh, I'm son of man that was prophesied by Daniel. I'll raise myself from the dead in John 10. I'm the bread of life, the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. All of these are Jesus very clearly proclaiming that he is God. You see, the problem was not that Jesus was unclear about who he was or where he came from. The problem was that religious leaders didn't want to believe. They did not want to see Jesus for who he was because they didn't want the implications that would come with that. They would have to give up their power and surrender their life. And they would have to deny themselves and make their life, as John the Baptist said, about him. And they wanted it to be about themselves and what they knew. And we can look at them and say, what a bunch of idiots. But it's the same thing's true for us. Unbelievers today are in the same situation. It's not an evidence issue that keeps people from believing in Christ. It's a, I don't want to change and give up my sin and stop living how I want to live issue. Right? That 99% of the time is the issue of unbelief, specifically where we live, which leads us to letter C. Letter C is that the truth about Jesus always demands a response. It demands a response. This is where the gospel can get offensive. This is where Jesus was offensive to these leaders and they wanted to kill him. Because if Jesus is who he says he is and he came to do what he said he came to do, then the truth and that truth steps right in our path and divides all humanity. It tells us who we really are and tells us what we really need. And that can be offensive because it tells us that we're a sinner and that we are condemned before God and that without a Savior, we will spend eternally, eternity separated from God in an eternal hell and get what we deserve. And that can be offensive because nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told they're not a good person, that they're actually evil and that God actually doesn't love them, but he, they're enemies of God. That does not go over well with people, specifically religious people who think they're of God. And so Jesus is telling them that. And this gospel and this truth about Christ demands a response, which brings all of us to a crossroads. Will we believe or will we continue in unbelief? And the implications of these two categories are huge. For those that believe, Christ says salvation. He says eternal life. He says redemption and restoration from sin. We get a relationship with God. But for those who don't believe, he says eternal death. Eternal condemnation, eternal hell, eternal separation from God. And so the ultimate question when we read this passage is what are we going to do with Christ? What are you going to do with him? Because what you do with him has massive implications on your life. And it divides all people, including every person in this room, into two categories. Belief or unbelief. Secondly, in this passage, we get some proof marks of genuine belief. We get some proof marks that we are truly his sheep. We saw this in verse 26 and 27. He told us, 
uh, that they do not believe because they're not his sheep, and that his sheep listen to his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. And so here Jesus gives us some proof marks of those that truly believe. And this is important in our context because in our context, everybody believes, right? Everybody's a Christian here. If you went to church when you were eight or your grandma went to church or, man, if you just uh, don't hate God but you believe in God, whatever that means to you, then, then you're a Christian, right? Then you're okay with God. But that's not what we see here. Jesus says those that truly believe display some specific proof, proof marks in their life. They obey God. They listen to him and do what he says. They walk in a relationship with him. They know him and he knows them. And then they follow him. And all of these are very, very important. And so when we look at our lives, when you look at your life, are these three things present in your life? Do you obey God? Like, does the Word of God mean anything to you? When you read the Word of God, are you aligning yourself to God? Are you asking God to align Himself to what you want to do? Like, do you have a relationship with God? The primary evidence of a relationship with God is, is prayer. Like, do you talk to Him? Do you listen to Him through His Word? Do you spend time with him? Is he a person that you run to or is he just a force that's out there that you call on in just times of need? Like, do you have a relationship with him? Do you follow him? This is the idea of discipleship, commitment, sacrifice, discipline, devotion. Like, Are you actively seeking to grow and become more and more like Christ? This is what he's telling us. There's proof marks. And so when you look at your life, are those proof marks evident? Like, Do you have a relationship with him? Do you live a life of obedience? And are you walking in a relationship with him? If we're not, then we may be fooled just like these religious leaders. And then the last thing is the promise and the promises of salvation. And this is probably my favorite part of the whole passage in verses 28 through 30. Jesus literally says, for those that believe that are his sheep, we receive eternal life. We receive eternal security. And we receive, back up in verse 10, abundant life. Think about this. If we are a sheep, if we are true believers of Christ, if we've truly been saved, we literally get the presence of God forever. We get the presence of God permanently. We get the presence of God with maximum security. Like what could be better than that? We get God. We get God forever. We get to be with him forever. We get eternal security, meaning we are in the hands of God and nothing can separate us from that. We can't lose a salvation that we didn't do anything to get. It says God gave us to Christ. And so if he gave us and he sealed us with his Holy Spirit and we are safe in his hands, then nothing can snatch you out of the hands of an all-powerful 
God. Then he tells us we get abundant life. And this is the whole point of Jesus being the good shepherd. That the green pasture, that the still waters of Psalm 23, we get that in Christ. That his presence goes with us. And for so many of us, we spend our entire life looking for greener pastures in other places. We're looking for the peace of still waters somewhere else. But as many of these baptism testimonies told you, there's only one place to find them. You can look in a hundred different places, but you're created by God and for God. And you're created to find that peace and that satisfaction, that abundant life in Him alone. So right where you are, I want to close this way. I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning. I know you've heard some powerful testimonies through baptism. I know you've heard God's word. You've heard the truth about Christ. You've heard the proof mark of genuine faith. And you've heard the promise of salvation. And the reality for you today is if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, is those promises can be true for you. And if you're in the room and you look at your life and obedience and a real relationship and 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 life with Christ is not evident and you're not following him wholeheartedly, then the Bible would say you're not a sheep. But the invitation of Christ is come, right? He's not condemning you the same way he's not condemning these religious leaders. He's telling them the truth and he's saying, listen, this, you can come to know me and walk with me. And so right where you are, I want you to bow your head. If you're in this room today and you say, Billy, that's me, and today I want to be saved. I want to know God. I want to be a part of his fold. I want to follow him as the good shepherd. And today I want to make that proclamation. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you are and say, Billy, that's me. That's what I want today. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Say, that's me. Amen. Praise God. And for the rest of us in this room, maybe we're in the room and we've gone astray. Maybe we're in the room and we've drifted into this religiousness where we, we're not following Christ anymore. We're just kind of doing what we want to do, and we're, but we, we've stamped Christ on it. But when we look at our life, we're far from God. Well, the invitation this morning is would you come back to it? Would you come to him? Would you repent? Would you turn from your sin and turn back to Christ? But for all of us in this passage, there is great, great hope that we are eternally secure with God if we are saved and will be with him forever. The promise of his presence forever permanent. Do you know that? This morning would it encourage you. God, I pray for every person in this room this morning, God, that they would have that promise. Lord, the promise of your presence, the promise of eternal life, the promise of eternal security, God, the promise of abundant life, Lord, that this morning they would feel that and the Spirit of God would speak it into their heart and speak it into their mind, God, and it would drive them, encourage them to pursue you even harder than they already are. And God, I thank you for these promises and I thank you for your word. God, would you do work in our hearts and in our lives through it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. I love you, and I'll see you back next week.